0: everyone, John Huang here with Cindy Fang, bringing you another episode of Hoofbeats, Beats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside fellow clinicians. Notice how I didn't say master diagnosticians this time.
1: And that's because the discussants for our episode this week are actually members of our own Core IM team.
0: Now, even though none of us here at Core IM are master diagnosticians yet, Cindy and I thought that interviewing doctors from our own relatively junior cohort could still be a valuable source of insight onto the reasoning process.
1: In the very least, they are easier
0: targets. (laughs) But maybe, in all seriousness, we can also trust them to be a little more forthright when dissecting their own thought processes, uh, including when breakdowns occur. Let me tell you from experience, having no reputation to protect can be tremendously liberating.
1: (laughs) That sounds like me on my teaching rounds every morning. So we bribed and conjured three of our colleagues to talk through this case with us. This was a patient Zhang and I had on our service when we were interns. You'll hear the case presented in discrete chunks of information, and you'll hear our team's reaction after each one.
0: As always, we want you to play discussing along with them. So be sure to take a moment after hearing each bolus of information to gather your thoughts. Also, we're teaming up again with our friends at HumanDX. Uh, they are publishing an interactive version of this case on their platform for you to solve. Uh, links will be in the show notes. This is also a good time to mention that HumanDX is running a week-long challenge specifically featuring cases of altered mental status and neurologic disease. So definitely check it out. Uh, remember, when it comes to clinical problems, practice makes perfect.
1: All right. So now that we're on the same page, let's move on to the case. John, do you want to go ahead and present the first chunk?
0: Yeah. All right, here we go. So this is a 23-year-old man who was brought in by EMS for confusion and disorientation. And the story is that for the past four days, uh, he's had a flu-like illness. Um, The symptoms he's reporting, uh, fevers, chills, generalized muscle aches. He's had a sore throat. He's had a cough productive of yellow sputum. And he's had nausea with a single episode of non-bloody vomiting. His friends, who accompanied him to the hospital, uh, they've noticed that during this time he's been a little bit off, uh, not quite talking to himself, Uh, though this has been subtle. They weren't really able to put their fingers on, on what was exactly wrong. But on the day of admission, they found him lying on his bathroom floor disoriented and confused. He was unable to tell them what had happened, and so at that point he was brought to the hospital. So first up at the plate is our very own Dr. Shira Sachs, fellow Hoofbeats writer and host and hospitalist at Cornell Medical.
2: So I'm thinking mostly in an infectious category right now, with these four days of fever, myalgias, cough, and sore throat being relatively nonspecific symptoms. I'm thinking about, is this a viral URI? And then in the altered mental status, with this disorientation for the last three days, you know, I want to be able to tie potentially any of those viral infections into his disorientation. So is he dehydrated leading to a metabolic abnormality, be it uremia, hypo or hypernatremia? Does he have a meningoencephalitis directly related to an infection?
3: And I would say putting on my primary care hat, if this guy showed up in clinic or in the emergency room as like a first point of contact, he really perfectly fits my illness script for viral meningitis. Because he's a young, otherwise, I I hope healthy guy who just decompensated really quickly in a way that's very unusual for a young guy. Um, the syncopizing, the being, having altered mental status just from a a viral infection. Um, so I would jump straight to that and then try to round out, like, what else could I be missing? Is this not meningitis at all? Um, is it not an infection at all? But that's right where my mind went. Um, and especially with the measles outbreak happening right now, it's hard not to go straight to, um, to meningitis. So, um, But then I, I really like how Sharia laid out all the other um, systems that could be involved.
4: That's
0: Dr. Janine Knudsen, a writer and producer at Core IM's Mind the Gap. She's a primary care physician colleague of mine here at Bellevue. And uh, you hear her openly acknowledging uh, her use of pattern recognition and early anchoring in her initial remarks.
4: I mean, one episode of nausea and vomiting is kind of surprising to me. So the fact that he was found collapsed in his bathroom uh, makes it does seem like it's more of a severe viral inf- illness than you would normally expect. If you told me that you didn't really know what was going on with this guy, I'd probably figure he's probably having a lot of diarrhea or vomiting. If this was a Monday morning, some of this might have been from him partying too hard over the weekend. So it's hard to say, but uh, I'd want to know more. <laughs> is projection a cognitive bias? I like to think of myself as the common man, John.
2: John, are you throwing shade to your discussants?
4: Just as Steve.
2: <laughs> and last,
1: of course, that is Dr. Stephen Liu, writer and producer, along with Janine at Mind the Gap.
0: And as he's quick to remind us, uh, suffering from the effects of a lingering cold, which apparently excuses him from having to justify any of his diagnostic errors. So uh, let's get deeper into this case before Cindy and I really uh, jump and start picking apart everything. Cindy, do you want to give us the next chunk of information?
1: So he has a history of Crohn's disease diagnosed six months ago via endoscopic biopsy. He is on infliximab and azathioprine. His last infliximab infusion was within the past month, and he has not been having symptoms recently.
3: Yeah, well, all of a sudden we have an immunosuppressed 23-year-old, so I think that changes a lot. Um, Definitely leans more towards infection, just to sort of state what I think we're, we're all thinking. But, um, but then you sort of wonder autoimmune disease. Like, is there anything else that could masquerade and look sort of like this that's autoimmune? I think I would turn to Google for this one. <laughs> I would definitely look at, um, autoimmune disorders associated with Crohn's. That's the first place to go, just not doubting that diagnosis, um, to start. And then if I were to doubt that this is Crohn's and maybe there's some other syndrome that could cause all these symptoms together, I'm not thinking of it off the top of my head. So I might, um, try to look up. You know, a vasculitis, because that's an autoimmune disease that might be more likely to affect more organ systems. But now I'm really, really reaching, I think. I'm still considering infection as the top, um, top reason.
2: Yeah, I'd want to think about what infectious etiologies um, this patient could now have related to his azathioprine and infliximab exposure. And we always think about TNF alpha inhibitors in TB, but I want to do a deeper dive. You know, if we end up going down the meningitis pathway, Should we be thinking about less typical bacterial infections in this population like listeria? Should we be thinking about, you know, viral agents I typically wouldn't think of in this patient like VZV or something like that? Um, And then again, just like Janine, I was also wondering, you know, it would be nice to know a little bit more about his Crohn's history. Is there a different vasculitis that can also have CNS manifestations and GI manifestations? Or is he just really unlucky and has a second autoimmune process that can cause CNS manifestations as well?
1: One thing I do want to point out, how reliable is this past medical history, or any history we get here, from this patient coming in with altered mental status and confusion? Did he omit any other important information? Remember, plenty of dynastic errors happen in the stage of data acquisition, even before the stage of data interpretation.
0: Yeah, you know, exploring that skill of, of data acquisition, um... Something that we might want to explore in the future. It's going to require a different type of format, though, for sure. Uh, changing tack a little. Something that I, something else that I will say, and just this is just listening to them talk. Uh, and also, this comes from knowing Janine and and Steve, and being able to watch them firsthand on the wards. And uh, I'm sure, I'm certain, Shira is this way too. They're very candid uh, about what they don't know. Right? You hear them talking about. Not knowing off the top of their head all of the disease associations uh, with Crohn's, and I can tell you um, that that's how they talk. Whether it's you know in a group of peers like this, or whether they're teaching in front of their students and residents. And uh, I guess I bring this up because I think that takes guts, and it goes counter to everything in uh, certainly everything that I encountered in my training. Right between MCATs, classes, steps, tending rounds, write ups, I. I mean, when was I, when were we ever incentivized or encouraged to be wrong? Um, But here, you know, you have these folks here, for lack of a better phrase, uh, reverse pimping. Instead of asking questions that only they can answer, they make a point of deliberately asking questions whose answers they don't know. Moving on to our third data chunk. So the patient lives in the U.K., uh, and he's traveling here in the U.S. on vacation. He arrived in New York City three weeks earlier, and he stayed in the city. He's not really pursuing any unusual activities elsewhere. He's been staying in a hotel with his friends. Uh, he's frequented bars and pubs, uh, though he's careful to mention that he hasn't drunk since the onset of his illness four days ago. Back in England, he lives in an urban environment, specifically the, the city of Sheffield, uh, where he works as an electrician. Uh, he keeps a home, and he has no pets.
3: I'm Googling mad cow disease, just so you know. <laughs> really reaching, really reaching
2: here. No, I just, I just Google searched prion disease England to see what the stats are right now.
0: <laughs> I love Amazing. how one of you typed in mad cow disease, even though she's a doctor. <laughs>
2: this information is good to know you know he's a young guy he's you know involved in the bar scene like we mentioned earlier could there be any other uh, toxic exposures that could explain his altered mental status even though we're thinking more along the lines of an infection you know and anytime someone's traveling you really need to get a sexual history because people tend to have new sexual contacts when they're not in their home environment and uh, as we already stated you know acute hiv is certainly on our mind so i think this just kind of continues to bring up other things we might want to be thinking about. But I don't think it sways us too far in any direction.
3: No, I completely agree. I think, uh, you know, England's not a country that I associate with particularly rare or strange infections except uh, prion disease, which I think is yeah, mad cow specifically, um, which I think is probably just a factor of like weird facts I learned in medical school <laughs> and probably less relevant to this patient. Um, but it doesn't really um, set off any alarm bells, which is that the travel happened three weeks ago. And I'm just trying to think of any infection that has an incubation period of three weeks, but that it gets so acutely worse all of a sudden. And I, there's not a lot that comes to mind. So it makes me really wonder if the travel is actually associated with his current presentation or whether this is all something he got once he actually arrived here. Um, you know, just because, you know, infections on airplanes, obviously very common, but I think for him, it's probably more local.
4: Is there a MERS outbreak that's occurring right now, too?
3: Yeah, I was gonna make a joke about him making a connection through Dubai, but I didn't think that was appropriate. I don't even know where Mers is now, but
2: <laughs> that would be an, a a very circuitous route from England to New York.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, my bad geography. You knowledge. Took
2: the spirit air of England to get here.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Shira. That's one potential sponsorship for Quarium that we can <laughs> remove from our wish list. Uh, Janine's point, though, I think is uh Worth reiterating, right, Cindy? When we consider the possibility that a, a patient has a diagnosis related to travel, uh whether that's a febrile illness or diarrhea or what have you, probably the single most important thing is to define the potential incubation period as precisely as possible, right? That has tremendous discriminative power.
1: Right. In this case, it's been three weeks since between when he traveled and when he arrived. There are not a ton of diseases that take that long to get going.
0: Yeah, I bet we can even name most of all of them here. Uh, certain parasites, right? Like f- uh, falciparum malaria incubates for up to a month. Um, the other species of malaria, I think, can go for even longer, like vivax. Uh, leishmaniasis, schistosomiasis.
1: Um, viruses, uh, like HIV or hepatitis viruses.
0: TB, of course. Uh, so this kind of a list is, uh, at least to me, uh, much more manageable than trying to remember uh yeah, which countries are, uh, is uh, leishmaniasis endemic in?
1: Um, but none of these diagnoses really come into play in urban England, except possibly for HIV, as Shura says. So the team puts aside this data point. <laughs> All right, fourth data chunk. On examination, he is febrile to 104.6. He is tachycardic to 128. He has a blood pressure of 130s over 80s and tachypnic to 22. A normal oxygen saturation of 98% on room air.
3: Yikes.
2: He's sick. Pay attention. I mean, I see those vitals and I need to see this patient right away. Like, I might need to collect my thoughts or look more stuff up later, but I need to go evaluate this patient. Yeah,
3: immediately. Exactly. I don't know. This is hopefully not um, going to make it into the recording, but I'm trying to remember if viral infections te- are actually proven to lead to higher fevers than bacterial. Like if, if the, the um, numbers here would really lead us in one direction or the other, but I'm not really remembering.
2: Um, I mean, I guess there's certain infectious agents that cause that like temperature pulse dissociation, which this patient doesn't have. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't, Typically, think of it necessarily helping us one way or another about the actual ID bucket.
0: For my part, I've always wondered what actually defines uh, pulse temperature dissociation. Like, is his moderately elevated heart rate of 128 disproportionately low relative to his very high fever of 105? Um, as it turns out, uh, at least based on my reading, there isn't necessarily a uniform definition of this phenomenon across case studies. Uh, there was a 19th century German physician, uh, who specialized in the physiology of fever. And there's a semi-quantitative rule of thumb, uh, named after him, von Liebermeister's rule, which says that for every increase in temperature of one degree Celsius, the pulse should increase by eight to 10 beats per minute. So this patient has a temperature of, you know, almost 41 degrees Celsius. That's four degrees hotter than the normal body temp of 37. So his heart rate of 128 is, According to this rule uh, about expected,
1: Zhang, um, you you realize this is a clinical reasoning podcast, yes. right?
0: Yes, yes, yes. You know, I can't. First of all, you were the one. <laughs> Listen, sometimes I can't help uh, indulging in trivia, and I will say sometimes trivia is a useful scaffold for. Let's just move on. <laughs> Data point number five, uh, his neurologic exam is abnormal, so he's awake, he is oriented, and he's answering questions, uh, but he appears just tired and listless. He can't perform serial sevens past 93. He can't spell words backward. Uh, his speech is scanning. In other words, it's slow and halting, and there are noticeable pauses in between syllables within a word. Uh, He struggles with rapid alternating motions, and he exhibits dysmetria bilaterally. In other words, he overshoots when asked to point. He's unsteady on his feet. Uh, He struggles to get out of bed, and when he does, his stance is wide.
3: Definitely, I'm more worried about um, something um, in the central nervous system, specifically his cerebellar dysfunction. Uh, But I'm not sure I would necessarily say this is just a cerebellar infection. I would still just be worried about meningitis in general. Um, But this is very concerning.
2: Yeah. Uh, like there's some global features of his encephalopathy, his inattention, his speech difficulty, but there are specific cerebellar signs. You know, um, I think we'll probably get hand imaging early on. We want to make sure there's no mass lesion, but also going down sort of the meningitis category. We want to think about things that can cause a vasculitic like picture and stroke like symptoms, like something like VCV. Um
3: Um, Google is great. (laughs) Am I allowed to tell you what I found?
4: A case report with John Huang. (laughs) I, well, (laughs) no, not, not that
3: good. Not that good. Um, so I went there and just Googled infection, cerebellar infection. And there's a great different, uh, article I found sort of summarizing the differential in this journal. What journal is it? Neuro, mm, neurological clinic journal. And the pathogens most frequently affecting the cerebellum are Listeria, VZV, JC virus, and Quartzville yakob disease. I feel validated. Um, and I mean, there's a, there's a few others that they list, some other um, viral infections. But I think, uh, I think that's somewhat helpful. But again, like sure, I don't want to put like all my eggs in one basket um, and really um, only anchor on that.
0: Steve, you're handicapping yourself by speaking last each time. You do know that.
3: I think he's Googling. He's Googling. We know what he's doing.
4: I mean, I, I just wish I had something more interesting to say. I, I, I'm honestly, so one thing I get caught up, and this is why I don't leave the hospital on time often, is that I get like an interesting idea in my head, and then I will just try to search case reports to read about it. So earlier when we were talking I guess when I, guess I can backtrack a little bit. When we were talking about the cerebellar findings, I was wondering to myself, well, what infections do I know that go to the base of the brain? And so I was conflating base with cerebellar so that I was thinking of things like HSV meningitis, and I was reading more about that to see what I could find in terms of clinical findings. Um, the other two folks shared much more, I think, accurate description of what you'd find, uh, what kind of viruses you'd find that go to the cerebellum. And so... At that point, I kind of gave up on that search. And now I'm reading about PCP uh, in infliximab patients for no particular reason, except for I just felt like it. I'm sorry
0: that we're boring you, Steve. (laughs) No,
4: you asked me what I thought what I was doing, so I'm telling you. So now we
1: hear these folks trying to incorporate cerebellar dysfunction into their thinking. And there seems to be agreement The cerebellar dysfunction sounds unusual enough that it probably adds specificity to this case, but no one's pattern recognition is being activated yet. You see Janine reaching again for her external Google Drive brain.
0: (laughs) You know, you can also see how in the absence of a a fast answer, they are instead um, mapping out the syndromic diagnoses here. and. You know, what I mean by that is they're proposing different mechanisms um that might let them connect infection, the infection they're assuming he has to his cerebellar dysfunction, right? So you see, right, so you hear Shira and Janine both talking about infectious cerebellitis, you know, direct uh, viral invasion of the cerebellum. Mm-hmm.
1: And Shira brings up a mass lesion, like an abscess sitting on the firmus that could be causing cerebellar ataxia.
0: Meanwhile, Steve considers the broader category of just infections that have a tendency to go to the base of the brain, uh, like HSV encephalitis.
1: And they are still considering that this could be an infectious meningoencephalitis that just happens to have a prominent cerebellar exam finding.
0: One other category that they don't explicitly bring up, uh, is a para-infectious cerebellitis. That's a cerebellitis that's not caused by direct infection of the cerebellum, but it's, uh, it's an indirect immune-mediated syndrome that, that occurs in the aftermath, usually, of an infection. Uh, not to foreshadow too much, but. <laughs> Ready for the next data point?
1: All right. It's a lumbar puncture. Obviously, this was preceded by a head CT, which was read as normal. In terms of the LP, the CSF looks normal, colorless and clear. With a normal opening pressure, the WBC is slightly elevated with 13 cells, all limbs and monos. Protein is 19 and glucose is 78, both normal. Green stain is negative, cultures are negative, and PCR
3: for HSV
1: and VZV are negative.
3: So the first thing I want this to be is a false negative, but it probably isn't. <laughs> because um, that would just be so easy. Um, and the next thing I'm thinking is, this does not lead me away from infection. Like, I'm still super worried about a meningitis. So what are the meningitis that cause, um, that can still have a normal CSF? Um, and so I would go down that route next.
2: Um, I agree. I mean, there there are 13 cells in there, so that's certainly not totally normal. And I'd want to kind of think about, sure, if this isn't a typical bacterial meningitis. We talked about listeria. If we already know our HSV and VZV are negative, I'm going to expand my database and look online about you know what other meningoencephalitides could this be um, and continue to think about other things that could cause this presentation at the same time.
4: I agree. I think that you've moved away from bacterial causes, obviously, but the you'd want to see how often you could get a false negative while you have somebody in afliximab.
0: I think it's interesting how Janine says that this basically normal or mostly normal LP does not exclude bacterial meningitis for her. Um, Cindy, when was the last time that you used Bayes' theorem uh, to actually manage one of your patients?
1: What do you mean? Like actually calculated probabilities of a disease yeah. based on the test result? Well, mm. almost never.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't think many of us do. I We learn in med school, uh, and personally, I you know, used to think it was enough to just know the principle. But I think more recently I've found that, uh, you know, doing even simple Bayesian calculations from time to time can really help make, you know, this principle tangible. I, I think that Janine's question here about the LP uh, is is a good opportunity to do this. Um, so as you probably remember, the basic idea of Bayesian inference is that how we interpret a test result, you know, like negative LP... Depends on two things. Um, how likely we thought the disease was initially and how good the test itself is. So let's say that Janine's initial suspicion for bacterial meningitis is 10%. And let's say that the sensitivity of LP for bacterial meningitis is 88%. I'm getting that number from a 2004 NEJM study. And let's also assume for the sake of convenience that LPs are quite specific for bacterial meningitis. Again, 88%, which, you know, I, I think they are. Um, so. If Janine's pretest probability is 10%, she goes online, she plugs these numbers into a Bayesian calculator. It'll tell her that the probability of bacterial meningitis uh, with, despite a negative LP uh, goes down to about 1.5%.
1: That's pretty low. I have a feeling most clinicians will forego impaired meningitis treatment with that number.
0: Agreed. But let's say she thinks the probability, the pretest probability of bacterial meningitis is actually quite high. Um, let's say that she thinks it's more likely than not, uh, say 60%. So if we plug in that pretest probability of 60% along with the same sensitivity and specificity of lumbar puncture, 88%, into that Bayesian calculator, you get a post-test probability of 17%. A 17% posterior probability this patient has bacterial meningitis despite a negative LP. That number is much more discomforting. Wouldn't you agree?
1: I think most of us will feel uncomfortable discontinuing antibiotics when there is a one-in-six chance of missing bacterial meningitis.
0: So, you know, I'd like to think that it's enough to just understand the implication of Bayes' theorem in the abstract. But truthfully, you know, this happens time and again. When I take the time to do these kinds of calculations as we just did, I am always surprised by how wildly that post-test probability can swing, you know, depending on what my pre-test suspicion for the disease is. You know, and how well that test performs. I mean, the difference between a 1% chance of meningitis with a normal LP versus 15%, that's huge. Um, basically, I don't think my gut really believes in Bayes, even if my head does. So I think this, you know, this might be an argument for why we should make it a habit, at least from time to time, uh, to practice these kinds of, of Bayesian calculations. Uh, So the next chunk of data, uh, routine admission labs. He's hyponatremic to 131. His transaminases are moderately elevated. His AST is 357. His ALT is 111. And his LFTs are otherwise normal. His cell counts are also deranged. He's leukopenic to 2.6. Differential 74% neutrophils, 20% lymphs, 5% monos. He's anemic to 10.9 with an MCV of 81. Uh, and his platelet count is down to 87.
3: So this is what I was worried about, that if we got the full set of labs and we saw the abnormalities, I was thinking there would be some liver involvement, and then I was thinking maybe there would be electrolyte derangements, and I don't think this was, I didn't think this would help me, and I still don't think it sort of changes the next steps in terms of going straight for the MRI, still focusing on the brain, um, which is frustrating, but (laughs) it is what it
4: is. I think that's probably, (laughs) I mean, so, like, y- you might expect some inflammation, but at the same time, he's on infliximab, so him having pancytopenia is probably not the most surprising thing in the world, and it fits along with our whole idea that he's immunocompromised. I-, I feel like that was the least surprising slide you've showed us so far.
3: I don't know, though. I mean, I you know, not everyone on infliximab is pancytopenic, so I would still be worried that something else is going on. The first thing I'll think of is marrow suppression, um, but it definitely makes me think, oof, I don't want to miss something else. That's a lot. Um, bigger or different than an infection that I haven't already thought about.
0: Shira, you're leaning back in your chair.
3: Shira is the deep thinker <laughs> in the group,
0: <laughs> clearly.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think similar to what Janine said, I'm curious, you know, is this bone marrow suppression from whatever primary infectious process is causing his other symptoms and signs? Um, and Janine, can I ask you to specify what you meant when you don't want to miss something else?
3: I mean, I I think, you know, we talked at the very beginning about other autoimmune conditions or vasculitides that could masquerade as infection or could be contributing to the picture. And um, yeah, so I'm back in that category again, just thinking, you know, what else could there be? But nothing immediately pops into my mind for that. And now we're down to our last data point. The patient has a
1: chest x-ray done. We had our discussants Look at the image without interpretation, but for the benefit of you folks listening out there, I'll say it showed a left upper lobe consolidation, which was correlated on a non-contrast chest CT. Oof!
3: I don't like it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Is it is it penetrated
3: Well, I was I was really hoping there would be nothing in the lungs. Maybe I'm overreading the left apex.
4: No, you're not overreading the left apex.
3: Yeah, good. I was like, if if I'm over reading that, I need to go back to my radiology skills. Um, I was really hoping there'd be nothing in the lungs because the oxygenation status was normal. Um, I know he had a slight cough, but I was hoping that'd be something in his throat. So now we're, you know, tuberculosis is back up there. Um, Other, you know, pneumonias are back on the list. So it broadens the differential thing.
4: And so you've given me a guy with a pneumonia. He's got cerebellar findings of. You know, everybody's pointed out, uh, and he is coming in relatively septic. So I would try to link those three findings together. Um, And what I usually end up doing is probably building differentials based off of one or two of my key points, probably what's going to cause pneumonia and cerebellar things, and build from there. Uh, My guess is I might start off with uh, causes of an acute pneumonia that might then spread to the brain. And so that's what I've been thinking about recently. But I mean, otherwise, what I think of is like strep pneumonia going to brain and causing strep meningitis.
2: Yeah. Along those lines, I also want to make sure I think about any atypical like lung plus brain infections. And for me, uh, like nocardia, actinomyces, but I think particularly nocardia, I want to think about and look up if it could be consistent with this patient's presentation.
4: I think of actinomyces and nocardia as being more slow.
2: Yeah, agreed. But same with TB.
0: Be careful what you tell TB to do. <laughs> that's a Bellevue lesson right there.
4: I think that's an anywhere lesson, dude.
1: <laughs> so at this point, we started pushing our core IM team discussions for closing thoughts much to their chagrin, and on what they would do diagnostically and therapeutically.
3: I would say we have a young, um, a young man on immunosuppressant medication coming in with a few days of um, global infectious symptoms. Uh, Found to have altered mental status with um, cerebellar signs, uh, possible pneumonia, and uh, signs of systemic inflammation.
2: Yeah. So I'd say we have a young immunocompromised patient presenting with viral symptoms and altered mental status. Found to be febrile, tachycardic, with cerebellar dysfunction on exam. And labs notable for pancytopenia and hepatocellular transaminitis with a left upper lobe consolidation on imaging, a.k.a. WTF.
0: Not familiar with that syndrome. <laughs>
2: <laughs> cut that out. Please cut that out, John.
0: <laughs> Steve, do you use problem representations?
4: <laughs> Only when specifically asked. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. so I, I actually genuinely value uh, you saying that. I am curious, uh, there's a segment of people out there i think that would argue that these things are entirely artificial constructs well, so.
4: almost everything's an artificial construct what do you mean <laughs>
0: like- <laughs> thanks steve that includes our friendship
4: <laughs> i mean like these are just different I, but I, I mean i think these are different ways of thinking right so it's different modalities that you use
2: I'll try to explain where I'm trying to wrap my my head around, you know, clearly we're worried about underlying infection with sepsis, pneumonia, and then we have to tie together his altered mental status, pancytopenia, transaminitis. We talked about the viral things I still want to investigate include HIV, which we haven't done. I totally agree with Janine, EBV and CMV remain on my list. Again, I don't know, yes, it's a primary left upper lobe consolidation, but They both can certainly cause transaminitis and pancytopenia, Um, and so I'd probably get PCRs and serologies for both, and get HIV fourth generation uh, antigen antibody testing, and then this altered mental status. You know, is there a lesion we didn't see on the CT scan? Are there small microabscesses or something that we we didn't see on CT? Again, direct CNS invasion or is this just global encephalopathy from his underlying sepsis? And I would definitely get an MRI. With contrast, blood, urine, and sputum cultures, I'd send the other non invasive pneumonia workup just because <laughs> strep, Legionella urine antigens. Um, but I think in this patient, you know, if our cultures don't grow anything, we're going to have to pursue further invasive testing, whether that's a bronch or something like that, to try to get um, an underlying etiology. And again, I'd send testing, specific testing for HIV, EBV, CMV at this point. And I'd probably do broad spectrum antibiotics. You already told us the HSV PCR was negative. So I, I probably would hold on the acyclovir for now. Um, but I'd, I'd probably give him vancomycin. cefepime. I and mean, I think that ampicillin for meningitis at this point, like we already talked about how his CSF is not really so consistent with a bacterial meningitis, but I would probably go broad spectrum, gram positive, gram negative coverage. I don't know that I'd pull the trigger on on antifungal coverage just quite yet.
0: Okay. So, she sure, vanco sorry, vancomycin, cefepime and uh ampicillin, you said.
2: I I honestly think I would just do vancomycin
4: and Vancomycin Yeah. Cefepime, got it. Steve. Uh VANC ceftriaxone azithro makes sense to me. Um, I don't know that...
0: VANC ceftriaxone azithro at pneumonia dosing or meningitis dosing for the... For- no,
4: no, uh, meningitis dosing. I think it's reasonable to cover initially for now. I, I think you, it's one of those you, um, you know, even if this ends up not being bacterial meningitis, you, the, the real harm, I think, given that you're likely to start similar antibiotics anyway, is probably relatively limited if you just go ahead and go full out there. Um, I don't know you that I would necessarily think you need the broad-spectrum uh, gram-negative. I don't think anybody would fault you for doing it. So vancapeme is just as good as vancceftriaxone, I would say.
0: Okay, so to sum up at this point, our group seems to be in general agreement about what they consider to be the essential features and the essential problems uh, that this case poses, right? What can cause lobar pneumonia and encephalopathy with such prominent cerebellar features, in uh, this young patient who's on a TNF-alpha inhibitor and has a wide variety of, of uh, metabolic lab abnormalities. They don't have an exact diagnosis, um, but they do know what they want to read up on.
1: And they agree generally on a treatment plan, continuing imperial treatment for meningitis as well as lobar pneumonia, and pursuing investigation of the CNS and lung processes in parallel.
0: So before we move on to reveal the diagnosis, let's just stop uh, Why don't you take a moment to lock in a diagnosis? And as you do that, I'm curious, do you suspect that your answer is incorrect? Uh, If yes, uh, if you think your diagnosis ultimately will be incorrect, or if you failed to arrive at one altogether, what do you think might have been the reason why? We actually asked our discussants these questions uh, before we revealed the answer to them. And also, my other question for you is is to do a bit of a pre mortem here, and and just if if you think that you're not going to get the diagnosis in this case, why why do you think that that is? Can you diagnose the problem ahead of time?
3: Um, yeah, I would say two things for me. One is that he's immunocompromised, so I have really broadened my differential and honed in on, but also honed in on infection. So both um, broad and narrow at the same time. And then the other piece is that I really anchored on it being um, an encephalitis or meningitis. And we have these CSF findings that are not leading or are are actually excluding a lot of the diagnoses I had. And so um, that sort of narrowed me into a corner that I feel stuck in based on that.
0: Do you mean, are you implying, Janine, that it's hard for you to move on from your initial framing of the case, even when I've given you evidence to the contrary?
3: Um, yeah, I, I think so. It makes me think that I need to change my problem representation, um, to something else.
2: Um, I mean, I think initially we were appropriately concerned for a meningoencephalitis and I don't think it's wrong to be concerned early on about things that you never want to miss. And then I think, you know, we got the physical exam and we're trying to tie in that initial suspicion with his cerebellar findings then as we got the CSF, we were trying to backtrack and explain our thought process. And then, you know, we, we got more and more systems being involved very rapidly and then got the the lung imaging at the very end. So I think it was kind of flipping how we were thinking about the case once we had already really generated a lot of disease processes and ideas in our mind and realizing that maybe what we were emphasizing, we were looking at like the wrong the wrong piece of the puzzle. As the the centerpiece,
4: yeah, I hear you. I, I I just think that the part that throws me off is that with encephalopathy, it, it makes sense that he would have a lot of the waxing waning mental status, but there there do seem to be some slightly more focalized neurologic findings that I wouldn't necessarily expect there. So, yeah, that uh, I would love to just say that you guys gave us really bad cap. That would be like awesome.
2: Just to clarify for those in the audience, cap stands for community acquired pneumonia.
4: But I I think it's. I think what's limiting me right now is that I don't know that I have a good explanation for that. So it's hard for me to, Is as, as tempting as it would be. I mean, in reality, probably what I would do in this case would initially see how much he would improve just with initial treatment. Um, like, because, you know, you get a patient and then they kind of sit overnight. Uh And then you kind of obviously try to keep them stable, but you want to see what goes on to the what happens the next day. Um, see if things do improve. If those cerebellar findings go away, then great, it's cap. Do we have to go further? But um, I don't know, I, I can't resolve that very easily for myself right now. And so I think that leaves me pretty confused as to what I think is actually going on.
1: Some common things emerge here. Shira and Janine both imply that their thinking might have been constrained by the way the case was framed, even though they are consciously aware of this possibility. And Steve points out that the differential remains pretty wide because they are not confident about the significance of the cerebellar findings.
0: So this technique, assuming that one has failed and trying to diagnose where things went wrong ahead of time, uh, this is called pre-mortem examination. It's a strategy that... I think is commonly seen in, in business management to identify weaknesses in, in, uh, in projects. But it's been transplanted into uh, medicine, into clinical decision making.
1: This is typically the opposite of what we do. The more common method is to analyze our mistakes after they happen. And no doubt that's an important process, the so-called cognitive autopsy or postmortem. The retrospective review has the potential to be distorted by hindsight bias, The tendency for ourselves to rationalize. Whoa! I knew that all along.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a famous experiment that illustrated this kind of uh, bias, which was published in 1972. It was by researchers uh, Baruch Fischoff and Ruth Baith. So at that time, Richard Nixon was president, and he was scheduled to visit China. And that was completely unexpected. You know, the two countries hadn't had formal diplomatic relations since 1949, and Nixon had this reputation as as being an ardent anti-communist. So nobody knew what would happen uh, at this summit. So the authors took this as an opportunity, and they gave their subjects a list of hypothetical outcomes of this summit. Um, so this. You know, this list would include items like, quote, the U.S. will establish a permanent diplomatic mission in China, unquote, or, uh, quote, the U.S. will refuse to formally recognize the, you know, the communist Chinese government. So Fishoff and Baith asked the subjects to rate how probable they thought each of these outcomes were from zero to a hundred percent, you know, a hundred percent being they were absolutely certain, um, that this would be what, what happened. And then, uh, after the summit had, had taken place and concluded. Months later, uh, the authors revisited these subjects and they asked them to try to recall how likely they thought each outcome was. Uh, And the authors found that for events that had actually transpired, the subjects would consistently overestimate that. They would say that they had thought it was 80% likely that, say, formal relations would be established, when initially they'd only put down 40%. The opposite was observed for events that didn't happen. And so uh, Fishoff and, and Baith interpreted this as evidence that, you know, human beings, we tend to anchor in our present reality and, uh, and we have difficulty retrieving our past states of mind uh, with any degree of accuracy.
1: And that's why pre-mortem examination comes in useful. Imagining something has gone wrong with your patient in the real world is one way to structure a diagnostic timeout. I often ask my residents on runs, Say, if this patient with the cellulitis does not improve on the antibiotics you are about to start, why and what do you want to do? Is there an alternative diagnosis, like an underlying abscess? Or this was not a cellulitis in the first place and there was a DVT underneath it? Or is it a management error, like choosing the wrong antibiotics that does not cover the right pathogen? Or your antibiotics uh, was subtherapeutic due to drug-drug interaction? I also find this technique useful in preventing medical errors. Um, I'm actually known for asking my residents the same questions almost every day. Of all your patients, who is the most likely to die on you today? And how? What can you do to lower the chance of the likely bad outcome? Or at least prepare yourself for the rapid response? So I think the time has come to discuss the diagnosis.
0: Yeah. And I want to state for the record that the treating team's thought process, at least if we're remembering correctly, uh, it closely resembled the path that our our discussions took. Everybody was confused. And his uh, the patient's mental status abnormalities certainly loomed the largest in our minds.
1: With regards to some of the tests the core IM team wanted, or you may want, the HIV test was negative. Hepatitis serologies were negative, Herpes viral serologies were negative, blood and urine cultures were negative. He was indeed put on antibiotics to cover both meningitis and community-acquired pneumonia, vincomycin, subtraxone, azithromycin. And within 72 hours, steady improvement was apparent. The brain MRI-MRA.
0: So what were the diagnostic tests? Well, there were two. A urine antigen assay, which returned positive for Legionella, and a sputum culture, which grew Legionella pneumophilia. So this was a severe case of legionellosis.
1: He ultimately made a full recovery and returned to his home country safely.
0: So you know, it's it's been seven years, I think, uh, since Cindy and I saw this case, and she was actually the intern assigned to him. I I just watched from from afar, but it has stood out to me. At you know, at least for all these years, I think, um, in part because of how challenging the diagnosis was to make prospectively and yet, you know, how it made makes perfect sense retrospectively, right? Every piece of data, you know, that we discussed is consistent, I think, with an experienced clinician's illness script for legionellosis, right? You have the patient himself, the young man who's immunocompromised, and more specifically, he has impaired cell-mediated immunity uh, because he's on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, so that's of specific relevance to intracellular organisms like legionellosis. He's also staying in a hotel, um, which, kind of, along with hospitals and pools, are one of the classic settings that's associated with legionellosis. Right, since it's aquatic amoeba and protozoa that live in these, you know, air conditioning water storage tanks that are the natural reservoir for these microbes.
1: And you have the illness itself: a low bar pneumonia, acute onset with florid systemic inflammation, and plenty of extrapulmonary manifestations. GI symptoms of nausea and vomiting, transeminitis, um, hyponatremia, cytopenia.
0: I think in the real world, our surprise at the diagnosis was, you know, driven at least in part by a knowledge gap, our knowledge gap, um, which is that neurologic abnormalities are are very commonly observed in severe cases of legionellosis. And specifically that acute cerebellar ataxia is a classic neurologic syndrome that's associated with uh, legionella infection. Some of the earliest case descriptions of legionellosis, uh, dating back to the late 1970s, which was just after the disease was first discovered, uh, make specific note uh, of this cerebellar syndrome.
1: The cerebellar ataxia syndrome seems to be an indirect, probably immune-mediated consequence of legionella infection. LPs are typically what seen in this case normal or almost entirely normal, and cultures don't grow anything. So this does not represent direct invasion of the CNS or meningo I mean,
0: certainly this case, I think, helped me refine my sort of mini-schema for pulmonary slash CNS illnesses. I mean, you know, hematogenous spread metastatic disease from a primary pulmonary infection um, that spreads to the brain. Has uh, you know, seen a pneumococcal pneumonia, you know, Cryptococcus, tuberculosis. That's always you know figured in my mind prominently. But thanks to this case, I'll always remember that Legionella um, and also Mycoplasma. Which is, so two organisms that are kind of notorious for extrapulmonary weirdness. They can sometimes cause these para-infectious CNS syndromes, and sometimes, as in this case, it, that can really dominate the clinical picture. <laughs>
1: I am disgusted and sounded disappointed, um, although I don't know why. They formulated a problem representation that essentially matched the diagnosis illness group, and they selected appropriate empiric treatment as well as ordering the correct diagnostic te- test.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to say they didn't, they didn't seem too happy with us. Uh, you know, as we kind of picked through the ashes a little bit, though, uh, Steve said something which I think deserves some mention.
4: But I, I guess my thought would be... Is at any point all of us were going to make sure that we covered this guy for cap, right? And so yeah. we we didn't necessarily miss the diagnosis per se, um, in the sense that we were going to cover for it. But what I heard a lot of was, I don't want to miss something more serious. We all want to think that the added value that we bring to our patient care is our brilliance in diagnosis or our ability to figure out a clever way of doing something. But you know, you you talked to me about liking to give antibiotic talks and this is like the old phrase, the enemy of good is better, right? Trying to go for an elegant solution is often the stupid solution because the reality is like 95% of doctors would have ended up treating this appropriately because they would have treated for, 99% would have treated for CAP. Would, and actually, probably during the Legionella outbreak in 2012, which we were all residents during, you would have tested for this reflexively and that would have been the right call to make. And I would say a lot of New York doctors now during the summertime do that, especially when it's been wet, right? So. And so when we were talking, you guys were talking about, let's get blood cultures, let's get sputum cultures. We said that multiple times. And if our subconscious thinking activates it and it's automatic, sometimes that is good enough.
1: Um, Steve is saying that even though they did not explicitly submit the correct diagnosis, they didn't recognize that the patient had the classic legionellosis syndrome. They identified the clinical problem with enough accuracy that they would have treated the patient properly in the real world sending off the right test to make the diagnosis in starting the right antibiotics upfront. front.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I rib Steve a lot, but I will say I do not think this is just him trying to save face for his group. I mean, it's an important question. How do we define uh, diagnostic success? Many times, maybe even most times, it isn't in convincing yourself or others that you've got the right final diagnosis a priori. It's in ensuring the well-being of your patient, right? So success for this patient in the real world, I I think is reasonable to argue, would be having quickly excluded life-threatening CNS infection and thoroughly evaluating him for both usual and unusual causes of pneumonia, and ultimately in ensuring that he received early and appropriately broad antibiotic coverage, including uh, the macrolide or the quinolone that would ultimately cure him of his legionellosis.
1: The diagnostic strategy with the highest accuracy isn't necessarily the optimal strategy for a doctor to use. Think about it. Let's say every single PE scan you ordered came back positive for PE. You don't get to brag that you're a master at diagnosing PEs. That just means you're not scanning enough people for PEs.
0: All right, listeners, that should do it for this episode.
1: I hope you had as much fun as we did torturing our colleagues. Remember, if you have a case you'd like to submit for discussion, or someone you'd like to come on and hear as a discussion, or if you're interested in developing and hosting an episode, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at www.coreimpodcast.com or send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Core IM Podcast.
0: Thank you to Drs. Sachs, Knudsen, and Liu for weighing in on this episode. And special thanks to our audio editors for this episode, Richard Chen and Harit Shah, along with our Core colleagues, Shreya Trevetti, Marty Freed, Amy Oh, and Michael Shen.
1: And an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu for extra emphasis.
0: Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice.
1: Thank you for joining us. With Core IM, I'm Cindy Fain.
0: And I'm John Huang. See you next time.